0: God Said Man Said has been privileged to stand in the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ for nearly 45 years in a formal format. The undertaking became a weekly effort in December 1999 when we went online. Week after week, we have stood to defend the faith. The onslaught of Satan's deceivableness of unrighteousness is incessant and is pouring out of every public orifice. The devil's people dominate education, media, entertainment. They permeate public and political discourse, and they are turning up the heat. Their ultimate goal is to keep the lost sons and daughters of Adam lost, keeping them bound by the chains of darkness, keeping them spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Times are dark, and the darkness deepens. Second Timothy 3, verse 1, and then verse 13 This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But be of good cheer, children of God. For Romans 5.20 reads, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The smallest candle cannot be overcome by the deepest darkness, no matter how wicked. Consider that the candle's greatest friend is gross darkness, for it is in this setting that the candle's glorious attributes are most profoundly felt. Shine on, children of God, shine on. God said, Man said, has defended against the plethora of challenges to the Holy Bible championed by the unwashed, but the Word of God has trounced them soundly without exception. Yet these challengers refuse to acknowledge the supremacy of God's book. The Lord speaks to the apostle John in Revelation twenty two ten and 11, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. We are at that place. Have you been born again, as Jesus declares in John three three? It reads, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except that man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can you point to a time where you repented of your sins, believing upon the blood of Christ for the saving of your soul, a place where you confess to others that you have decided to follow Jesus. This is where the unsaved meets born again. If you can't point to such a time and place, make today your day of salvation, where all your sins and shame are erased and where every one of Satan's bondages are broken. Today you will become a new creature, and you will be empowered by the Holy Ghost to live a victorious and holy life. Today everything changes— and you can do it right now. Are you ready? Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Proverbs 11, verse 19, As righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. God said, Genesis 1, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. God said, Proverbs 3, verse 19, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. Man said, I'm not worried about death and judgment day, I'm young and full of lusty pursuits. God made me that way, didn't he? Don't forget, God is love, and he'll forgive me for all my dirty deeds anyways, right? Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature article 957, that will for the 957th time certify the glorious inerrancy found in God's holy Bible. All of these faith-building features are archived here in text and streaming audio for the edification of the bloodbott, and as a platform from which to fish for the lost souls of Adam. Every Thursday Eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for coming. May God's face shine upon you with light and truth. This is installment 37 in the God Said, Man Said, Jot and Tittle series, where in rapid fashion we supply one God-proof after another. Prepare for God-proofs 271 to 276. All the loopholes have been closed. No reasonable doubt remains. The sinner is just not willing to pay the price. God-proof number 271, Proverbs 10, verse 16, and also chapter 11, verse 19. The labor of the righteous tendeth to life, the fruit of the wicked to sin, as righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. People who have rejected God, those who hate the principles of Christ, the disobedient, the atheists, and agnostics, all have something in common beside their disregard for their Creator, the bad fruits of their disregard, and the final hopelessness and terror that surely awaits them. Dr. Andrew Newberg and co-author M. R. Waldman share information on a study of religion and health in their book, How God Changes Your Brain. In one of the few studies to examine the potential health risk of religion, university researchers Kenneth Pargament and Harold Koning found that religious struggle defined as people who feel that they are being punished by God, possessed by demons, or who experience religious and spiritual discontent significantly shortened one's lifespans. Furthermore, if you find yourself ruminating on guilt and fear, or harboring negative attitudes toward God, clergy, and other church members, you will also be inclined to poor health and depression. People who have an anger at God have more medical problems and poor recovery rates from illnesses and hospitalization and patients who struggle with religious issues over time are particularly at risk for health. Conversely, to the result of those who reject God, the deeds of the righteous tendeth to life. Much scientific research exists on this matter. One particular discovery revealed that those who attend church more than once a week live 11% longer, or about eight years, and not just longer, but even more abundant life. The benefits of the cross are immeasurable, God proof number 272, two hundred seventy two second Samuel chapter five, verses six through eight, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, "Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion the same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter, and smiteth the Jebusites, and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. I need to know. Is God's Word really the supernaturally dictated, eternal words of an Almighty Creator? Is God's Word true and righteous altogether? Is it right? Everything, absolutely everything, depends on it. God Said Man Said uses four proof platforms to establish answers to all of the above questions. The first proof platform is archaeology, which is listed second from the top on the navigation bar to the left. Here, God said man said employs archaeology, paleontology, geology, chronology, ancient history, societal records, and microbiology to confirm the Word of God. Bizarre pronouncements in God's words are all proven beyond any reasonable doubt. A sampling of the subjects covered include creation, a 6,000-year-old earth, Adam's rib, Adam and Eve, the fall of man, the tree of life, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Jacob's sheep, Joseph in his coat of many colors, Moses and the Red Sea, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and so many more, all true and righteous altogether. Skeptics have long maligned the accuracy and credibility of the Holy Bible. Squirm and twist as they may, the book stands true and undefeated. Millions upon millions of books must bow before the Word of God. When one comes to the understanding that Revelation 19:13 says of Christ, and His name is called the Word of God, the reason all the world's books must bow becomes obvious, even prophetic. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is known as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, and every letter and word in between, every book must bow. While reviewing the archaeology plugs in Haley's Bible Handbook, many noteworthy, Bible-confirming archaeological discoveries were cited, and one follows. Until recently, the higher critics scoffed at the idea of a Goliath slain by a shepherd boy who would become the king of a powerful Israeli kingdom. If this boy existed at all, they claim, he would have merely been a chieftain of a small, inconsequential clan. Recent discoveries have proven this criticism false. Haley's notes confirm 2 Samuel 5, verse 8. Haley's reads, This water course, by which Joab and David's men gained entrance to Jerusalem, was discovered in 1998 by Ronnie Rich and Eli Shukran. It consists of a large pool which collected water from the Guyon Spring and was guarded by two massive towers. An underground secret passageway led from inside the city to a point where water could be drawn from the pool So that the residents of the city did not have to go outside the city wall to draw water. In the 1980s, a round stepped stone structure five stories high was discovered. It apparently supported an old Jebusite citadel, maybe called Zion, which was captured by David. David's city made use of the massive city wall that the Canaanites had built about 1800 BC. David was a great king who reigned over the twelve tribes of Israel via a secret underground passageway. He took the city of Jerusalem, even as the Bible says, so archaeology now confirms. God proof number 273, two hundred and seventy three, second Chronicles nine, thirteen through twenty four, and then verse twenty seven. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred and three score and six talents of gold. Beside that which chapmen and merchants brought. And all the kings of Arabia and governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And King Solomon made two hundred targets of beaten gold, six hundred shekels of beaten gold went to one target. And three hundred shields made he of beaten gold, three hundred shekels of gold went to one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne, with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne, and stays on each side of the sitting place, and two lions standing by the stays. And twelve lions stood there on the one side, and on the other, upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom." And all the drinking vessels of King Solomon were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold, none were of silver. It was not anything accounted of in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Huram. Every three years once came the ships to Tarshish, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks, and King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom that God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver, and vessels of gold, and raiment, harness, and spices, horses, and mules, a rate year by year. And the king made silver in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the low plains in abundance. The Bible tells us of King Solomon, the son of David, to whom god gave wisdom and wealth like no other monarch before or since the higher critics have challenged every account the bible gives of this legendary figure even challenging whether solomon or his father david ever even lived at all but as you should expect these so-called higher critics have been brought very low the following excerpts about king solomon are from k weller a uh, keller's book excuse me A W. Keller's book, The Bible is History. Doesn't it sound like a fairy tale? Any man, even a king, about whom so much is told is hard to put to it to escape the charge of boasting, and any chronicler telling such a story easily gets a reputation for exaggeration. There are certainly stories in the Bible which are regarded by the scholars as legends, such as the tale of Balaam the sorcerer and his talking ass, or the tale of Samson, whose long hair gave him strength. But this most fabulous of all stories is really no fairy tale at all. The archaeologists dug their way to the heart of the trustworthiness of this Solomon's stories, and lo and behold, Solomon became their unique showpiece. Packed high with the latest equipment with drills, spades, and picks, and Accompanied by geologists, historians, architects, excavators, and the photographer, who is now indispensable on a modern expedition, a caravan of camels is leaving Jerusalem. Its leader is Nelson Gluick, who, like the others, is a member of the famous American Schools of Oriental Research. Casting molds and copper slag in the middle of the scorching, pitilessly hot plain Gluick tried to find an explanation for this strange fact. Why did the workshops have to be located right in the path of the sandstorms, which almost incessantly sweep down the wadi from the north? Why were they not a few hundred yards farther on in the shelter of the hills, where there were also freshwater springs? The astonishing answer to these questions was not forthcoming until the last excavation period. In the middle of a square, walled enclosure, an extensive building came into view. The green discoloration on the walls left no doubt as the purpose of the building. It was a blast furnace. The mud-brick walls had two rows of openings. They were flues. A skillful system of air passages was included in the construction. The whole thing was a proper, up-to-date blast furnace— built in accordance with the principle that celebrated its resurrection in modern industry a century ago as the Bessemer system. Flues and chimneys both lay long a north-to-south axis, for the incessant winds and storms from the Wadi El Araba, I had to take over the role of bellows. That was 3,000 years ago. Today, compressed air is forced through the forge. Eventually, Nelson Gluick discovered in the casemated wall— of the Mound of the Rubble, a stout gateway with a triple lock-fast entrance. He was no longer in any doubt. Tel El-Halilif was once Ezeon-Geber, the long-sought vanished seaport of King Solomon, and King Solomon made a navy of ships in Ezion geber which is beside Eloth. Ezeon-Geber was, however, not only a seaport. In its dockyards, ships for ocean travel were also built, but above all, Ezion-Geber was the center of the copper industry. Nowhere else in the fertile crescent, neither in Babylonian nor in Egypt, was such a great furnace to be found. Ezion-Geber had therefore the best smelting facilities in the ancient Orient. It produced the metal for the ritual furnishings of the temple at Jerusalem, for the altar of brass, the sea as a great copper basin was called, for the ten bases of brass, for the pots, shovels, basins, and for the two great pillars, Jason and Boaz, in the porch of the temple. For in the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarthan, 1 Kings chapter 7. Gluick's delight at these unparalleled finds can still be detected in the official report which gathered together the results of the researches at the Gulf of Aqaba. Ezean-Geber was the result of a careful planning and was built as a model installation with remarkable architectural and technical skill. In fact, practically the whole town of Ezean-Geber, taking into consideration place and time, was a phenomenal industrial site without anything to compare with it in the entire history of the ancient Orient ezion geber was the Pittsburgh of old Palestine, and at the same time its most important seaport. King Solomon, whom Gluick describes as the great copper king, was on this basis reckoned among the greatest exporters of copper in the ancient world. Research on other sites completed this picture of Palestine's economy under King Solomon. End of quotes. King Solomon? Yes, absolutely yes. God proof number 274, Genesis one twenty-six and 27. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. What fully flies in the face of evolution and the idea that time, chance, and necessity will create some kind of evolution? The human brain. How did the human brain evolve as a result of time, chance, and need into its mysterious magnificence when it has capabilities that modern neuroscience is only just beginning to understand? The subconscious mind is truly a marvel of marvels. Dr. Bruce Lipton, stem cell biologist, educator, pioneering researcher, and author, had this to say about the subconscious in his book, The Biology of Belief. When it comes to sheer neurological processing abilities, the subconscious mind is more than a million times more powerful than the conscious mind. However, neuroscience has now established that the conscious mind runs the show at best only about 5% of the time. It turns out that the programs acquired by the subconscious mind shape 95% or more of our life experiences. The earlier subconscious mind is our autopilot. The conscious mind is our manual control. For example, if a ball comes near your eye, the slower conscious mind may not have time to be aware of the threatening projectile. Yet the subconscious mind, which processes some 20 million environmental stimuli per second versus 40 environmental stimuli interpreted by the conscious mind in the same second will cause the eye to blink the subconscious mind the most powerful information processor known specifically observes both the surrounding world and the body's internal awareness reads the environmental cues and immediately engages previously acquired behaviors all without the help of supervision or even awareness of the conscious mind. End of quotes. No, you didn't evolve from some primordial slime, and your cousin is not a banana. You were made in the image and likeness of God, and his godlike capabilities dwell between your ears. God proof number 275, Genesis 1 verse 1 In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In the book 20, Evolutionary Blunders, Dr. R. J. Guliuzza highlights Haeckel's embryos in Blunder 14. Acts and Facts briefly list Dr. Guliuzza's credentials. Dr. Guliuzza is ICR's national representative. He earned his M.D. from the University of Minnesota, his Master of Public Health from Harvard University, and served in the U.S. Air Force as 28th Bomb Wing Flight Surgeon and Chief of Aerospace Medicine. Dr. Guliuzza is also a registered professional engineer. Blunder 14 of 20 Evolutionary Blunders reads, Haeckel's embryos add to the long list of frauds in evolutionary theory. In 1874, Ernest Haeckel published a set of drawings that allegedly depict the developmental stages of a human embryo. They show a fish-like form changing into a salamander-like form, then a turtle-like form, then a pig-like mammal, then finally a baby. Evolutionists conjure, conjure up imaginary visions of these embryos supposedly reenacting our evolutionary history as they develop. Eventually, in the words of famous evolutionist Stephen Gould, they were discovered to be fraudulent. Haeckel so grossly distorted the embryos that they went beyond artistic license, according to another evolutionist, it looks like as turning out to be one of the most famous fakes in biology. These drawings— persuasively promoted three powerful evolutionary concepts. First, life evolved from primitive animals to complex humans. This fact is seen in the supposedly non-human structures that humans possess during development. My textbook commented, for example, the early human embryo has a well-developed tail and also a series of gill pouches in the pharyngeal region, Second, as my textbook went on to say, human and fish embryos resemble each other because human beings and fish share a common remote ancestry. It presented the remarkable similarity of the embryos in the illustration as strong evidence for a universal common ancestor. Third, a synopsis of the evolutionary history of life on Earth emerges as scientists map out all stages of embryonic development for every species. Remarkably, the stages of embryonic development for organisms called ontogeny supposedly reenacted or recapitulated their evolutionary history through time, which was called their phylogeny. Haeckel's embryos seemed to portray time-lapse pictures of evolution itself. Those concepts remain cemented in contemporary evolutionary thinking. During medical school in 1992, My graduate-level human development textbook contained the same drawings and concepts. As a student, I implicitly accepted concepts built from Haeckel's drawings as truthful. Belief in evolution seemed reasonable. Unfortunately, I was deceived by the pictures and concepts' extreme misrepresentation of reality. However, Michael Richardson makes the case that the magnitude of the true embryonic Uh, dissimilarities concealed by haeckel indicates intentional fraud to promote evolution he claims unfortunately haeckel was overzealous when we compared his drawings with real embryos we found that he showed many details incorrectly for example we found variations in embryonic size external form and segment number which he did not show and he sums up, it looks like it's turning out to be one of the most famous fakes in biology. Harvard's Stephen J. Gould, a zealous evolution himself, frames the legacy of Haeckel's behavior. I, I do dislike the common phrase, artistic license, especially for its a parochially smug uh, connotation when used by scientists, that creative humanists care little for empirical accuracy. After all, the best artistic distortions— record great skill and conscious intent, but I don't know how else to describe the work of Haeckel. To cut to the quick of this drama, Haeckel had exaggerated the similarities by idealizations and omissions. He also, in some cases, in a procedure that can only be called fraudulent, simply copied the same figure over and over again. Haeckel's drawings, despite their noted inaccuracies, entered into the most impenetrable, and permanent of all quasi-scientific literatures, standard student textbooks of biology. Once ensconced in textbooks, misinformation becomes cocooned and effectively permanent, because, as stated above, textbooks come from previous texts. Shouldn't students be skeptical when they're told that evolutionists can simply look at folds and embryos and see gill slits? The truth is that these are only folds of tissue in the pharynx region of vertebrae during the pharyngeal stage of development. For mammals, birds, and reptiles, they never develop into a structure that is in any way like fish gills. In humans, for instance, this fold tissue develops into cartilage or bone for the jaw, inner ear, hyoid, and voice box. Muscles for the face, temple, and neck form out of them as well as the thyroid, parathyroid, and thymus glands. No evidence exists that they ever resembled an adult fish or that throughout human history they lost the ability to form fish-like structures and now form new ones. Regarding Haeckel's biogenic law of recapitulation, Richardson's work in the 1990s demonstrated that concept was utterly incorrect. His results confirmed what Keith Thompson president of the Academy of Natural Sciences, declared in 1988, surely the biogenic law is as dead as a doornail. The human tail is another misnomer born of evolutionism's look-imagine-see methodology. What we actually see through time uh, are early precursors to the spine, uh, forming the axial skeleton, scaltococcus, In a slightly lagging sequence, the rest of the embryo grows from the head to rump on this foundational framework. So, when evolutionists see a lower portion of the axial skeleton where the embryo is yet to grow, they see a transient tail. In their imaginations, human embryos are recapitulating their reptilian past, but there is never a tail. The embryo grows down to its coccyx, which begins anchoring developing muscles of the pelvic floor. How much of the evolutionary story makes sense if human embryos never have gill slits or a tail End of quotes. God proof number two hundred seventy six Proverbs three verse nineteen. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. An old example of the absurdity of evolution's creation without a creator is this You're hiking through a forest and happen upon an exquisitely engineered and artistically engraved gold pocket watch lying on the ground. You marvel at how this elegant thing could have created itself. Where there is design, a designer is required. Time and chance just won't do. Dr. Tompkins, who holds a Ph.D. in genetics from Clemson, and as director of life sciences at the Institute for Creation Research made these observations concerning the dragonfly and the feature he authored in the july twenty nineteen issue of Acts and Facts. The feature is titled Intricate Animal Designs Demand a Creator Excerpts from that article follow. The field of bioengineering makes use of the design found in living creatures. One flying creature human engineers have tried to copy is the dragonfly. These insects are expert flyers. They can maneuver straight up and down, hover in a place like a helicopter, and even mate in midair. The dragonfly's optics are also amazing, with almost its entire head composed of visual sensors loaded with engineering that's only beginning to be understood. It has very complex eyes, constructed of individual visual sensory units called omatidia. A single compound eye has an integrated lens system containing up to 30,000 omatidia. Each individual omatidium collects its own stream of visual information that's transmitted to the dragonfly's brain, where it's decoded and processed uh, to a a form of mosaic image with intricate visual depth and detail. Combined with its flight capabilities, the dragonfly's high-tech visual system allows it to track and grab aerial targets like flies with deadly precision. A study of caged dragonflies found they were able to successfully snatch their rapidly moving prey out of the air with 95% accuracy, end of quote. The marvelous engineering found in the dragonfly requires a marvelous engineer. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them to put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. God's word is true and righteous altogether, every jot and every tittle. This is the place to build a life that will last forever. God said, Second Chronicles 9, verse 22, And King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. God said, Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. God said, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. Man said, I'm not worried about death and judgment day. I'm young and full of lusty pursuits. God made me that way, didn't he? Don't forget, God is love, and he'll forgive me for all my dirty deeds anyways, right? Now you have the record.